I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 9 of the Parenting Aces Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and this week's episode is coming at you from the U.S. Open COVID-19 edition bubble in New York. I'm not in New York. However, this week's guest, Coach Jay Gooding, is. And we do have a video version of this episode up on our YouTube channel and on ParentingAces.com. So those of you who are listening on one of the podcast apps, if you're interested in the video, go take a look. Also, make sure that you check out our show notes on ParentingAces.com. Not only this week, but every week of the podcast, because sometimes we have some links in there. We have some extra tidbits in there for you. So it's always worth a visit to ParentingAces.com. That said, this week's guest is Coach Jay Gooding, as I mentioned. Jay is working with Tennis Australia for the next two weeks during the U.S. Open. He did coach the Orlando World Team Tennis team during last month's WTT events in West Virginia at the Greenbrier and was working specifically with Danielle Collins uh, before and during World Team Tennis. So I'm sure he's got lots of great stories to share with us in this episode, not only about working with Danielle and working with World Team Tennis, now working with Tennis Australia, but also... Jay is a junior coach down in Florida in Lake Nona and was actually referred to me by one of our Parenting Aces listeners. So thank you for that. You know who you are. And I think you're going to really enjoy hearing Jay's philosophy on junior tennis, coaching junior tennis, and being the parent of a junior tennis player as they go through the journey. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast, Jay Gooding. Thanks so much for joining us. Ah, Thank you. Pleasure to be on here. Well, you're a little busy. You're in New York. The U.S. Open starting tomorrow. Can you give us a little sense of what's happening in New York in the bubble? Well, it's uh, definitely, this is my 19th consecutive U.S. Open. Wow. Uh, so this is by far the most uh, interesting one. But uh, listen, I think the, firstly, I think the players and, and the, the support staff being the coaches and trainers have, have enjoyed it just because there is a lot less people. Um, yeah. The grounds are themselves and, and players are outside sort of warming up where there'd be thousands of fans and it's uh, out by the fountains outside Ash. There's like a gym and there's putt-putt golf nice. and there's basketball. So it's, it's really uh, it's a really unique and fun environment. The players are relaxed. Uh, so it definitely doesn't have the feel out there today like first round of a Grand Slams tomorrow. So um, I think that's the positives. Obviously, that's not a sustainable model. I mean, we all want the fans in there and, and that makes it exciting, but... Definitely has a different feel. But the USDA has done an unbelievable job. Um, with the grounds themselves, uh, the way uh, they've sort of scattered everyone out and made it accessible to everyone, and then also in the hotel here has been uh, fantastic. It's, uh, it's They've got recovery rooms here. There's a gym. There's all physio, masseuse, food options, and um, the security is very tight. Very tight, so uh, everyone's sort of staying as safe as they possibly can. It's so funny to watch the footage, the TV footage of the players and the coaches all walking the grounds freely. There are no crowds there, and Mm -hmm. on social media, a lot of what I'm seeing is the players are really enjoying having the grounds to themselves. I think it's a nice change of pace for them and seems a lot more relaxed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's... It's some of the players haven't even seen parts of the grounds that uh, they would never venture to uh, right. as as athletes uh, with fans, you know. So uh, they're getting to see the grounds and see what a what an amazing facility it is. Right. So obviously you are not from the states, um, but are coaching based in Florida these days. Can you give our audience a little bit of history of your life in tennis, how you got started in the sport and how you made your way to Florida? 
Um, so, yeah, I grew up, started, you know, playing tennis around eight or nine years old, I would say, and then got straight into competing, playing tournaments straight away. Um, that's the whole reason you practice, right? Uh, right. Is, is to get them and compete and have fun. And it was so good in Australia growing up. I mean, it's, it's a little uh, shocking to see how junior tennis is here in America. Um, but Australia is the same now. I'm not saying it's just America, but how stressful and, and anxiety filled the, the junior competition is here. And uh, I was fortunate just not to have that at all. I mean, it was a completely different landscape. Junior tennis, there was no, you know, we weren't aspiring to be in college or to be pro or it was just playing for the fun, pure fun of the game. Um, and what, role, so, what, what role did your parents have in your tennis growing up? If any. They, yeah, none really. They drove me to tournaments. That was about it. Um, you know, they never watched a practice, dropped me off after school for my lesson, get one lesson a week. Then I'd play tennis the rest of the week just with friends. And then if there was a tournament, uh, my parents would come and it'd be a social thing with the other parents of the, of the kids that were playing. And it'd be like a fun weekend away, you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'd watch your matches and sometimes they wouldn't. They, you know, it's just, it was all, it was just more of a, a social aspect of it, you know. So what? No right. Sorry, say that part again. There was no ulterior motive to, to playing. It wasn't like, okay, we need to go to this tournament on the weekend so we get points so then you, you get recruited by college. And it, that, that wasn't, that was completely out of the realm of possibility there. Like yeah. it wasn't uh, the whole purpose to compete and have fun. Simple as yeah. that. Yeah. So at what point did you make the decision to move halfway around the world um, to come to the U.S.? Well, I, um, you know, I was having success as a junior in Australia. Um, I wasn't the, the top in Australia, but I was around the top 10 in the country all through, you know, 12 through 18s. And um, I wanted to go pro. I loved it. I mean, I was passionate about it. Um, my family didn't have too much money to support that with a coach or, or travel expenses. So they literally gave me a round-the-world ticket in about March, and I would see them again in November. You know, I would just wow. go and travel through Europe and play club tennis and play money tournaments and play futures and challenges and just literally go week to week. And uh, I did that for quite a few years and then um, ended up in America and met my current wife and uh, sort of never left. Yeah. Well, we're happy that you landed here. Yeah. Um, so you and I got connected through the mom of one of the juniors that you're currently coaching in Lake Nona. You now have an academy in Lake Nona right. and you work with juniors, but you also obviously are coaching on the professional side, given your presence at the U.S. Open, since there are no U.S. Open juniors this year. Can you tell us a little bit about your academy in Florida and kind of the philosophy that you've adopted for approaching junior tennis development? Um, so we, me and my partner, Jorge Tadero, um, he, we both worked together at the USTA in play development for four or five years, um, actually here in New York at the center. Yeah. So we, we, work with the female pros here but we also work with the the juniors um from i think the youngest was 10 or 11 that we had in the program and we we had great success up here and we really enjoyed it and we we sort of had a a nice little uh feeder program and pathway from from 10 11 year olds right through to the pros and we always sort of talked about it like when we USDA days are over, we'll, we'll start our own academy. So we've done that in Orlando and we'll just try to replicate the model that we had here in New York, um, purely based on success that we had. And and I guess the, the philosophy, I mean, I think one of the big things that we, we focus on is, is obviously number one is the technique and the, the basic fundamentals that each player must have. And then um, the importance in, in competing, you know, because at the end of the day, the only reason you practice is 
is to, to go compete and give yourself a chance to win and stuff like that. And, and my, my experience on the tour has really opened my eyes to it's not the best forehands and backhands that are, that are winning Grand Slams and tour events and, you know, having careers on the, um, on the WTA or ATP. It's, it's the best competitors that are, that are winning. And so that's that's part of it. You know, we put a huge emphasis on um, on being good competitors and what that means. How do you teach that? Because obviously there are ways to teach grips and strokes and tactics and even footwork and fitness, um, mental toughness. How do you teach being a good competitor? Uh, oof, it's 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 a lot. It's um, Definitely, uh, there's no perfection in competing. That's number one, and right. and, having, and having that, having the player understand that, and having the families understand that, and and or, or the team, whoever it may be, the mum, the dad, the the uncles, or whoever it may be that are that are sort of supporting the kids' tennis, is that there is no perfection in competing. Now you can have the perfect grip, and you can have the perfect swing path. And and you should strive for perfection in those things, you know, because it's if there's a um, what do you say that it's you can mark it, you can you can gauge it, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a science to it, but when it comes to competing, there is no perfection, and it's that's the tough part where the good competitors understand that, you know, and the the players who look a million dollars and they've got all the strokes and and they just find a way to lose as opposed to find a way to win, you know, because they think they're doing everything correctly, but it's just not about that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's about finding a way to win and there's a resilience factor that comes into that. Um, and we find in the pros and in the juniors that there is a, uh, that's a big one, the, the resilience. Um, if, there was a, if there was a secret pill that we could take to, to build resilient athletes, then uh, I'd love to see it. <laughs> do you feel like resilience is something that can be coached? Can it be parented? Um, does it take a combination of the parent and the coach to develop that in a developing junior player? Absolutely. What? Yeah, a- absolutely. It's, uh, you know, oof, I mean, there, there's lots of examples, but I'll, I'll sort of give one here. It's like um, playing a practice set and or playing a tournament and your opponent cheats or, or grunts too loud or does something that's annoying or disruptive. And but does that happen in junior yeah. tennis? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Right. And uh, so the, the other player complains about it, gets a referee, the parents get involved. You know, you can't grunt like that. That ball was in, that's cheating. That's, that's, sheltering the player from a chance to kill him right there. You know, mm. Deal with it. You know, it's going to happen. Because it, no matter what level, you get to college and there's people screaming out and cheering against you and, uh, you know, there'll be bad line calls because uh, the players call the lines in college. So it's if, if you're not exposed to that and, and have the, the mental capacity to, to be resilient and, and uh, cope with that stuff, then you're not developing a competitive athlete. You know, that's just one example. There's millions of little examples like that, you know. What is your philosophy on on a junior coach's role in helping the parents get educated on the developmental pathway and process? Um, Yeah, I think it's it's very important because the, the parents are heavily invested in their child's tennis. Literally and figuratively, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Both. And as coaches, we have to respect that. And we have to include them in the dialogue. We have to include them in in our vision and our plans and, and what the pathway looks like. Um, and I think it's – there's no other way to put it, but it's a relationship-based sport, um, tennis. And I will always – encourage a parent to 
go to a coach that you believe in and trust, and then that coach believes and trusts in you, even if the coach isn't the best coach in the world. You will get much more out of it than going to the the, the, the legend of a coach down the road who, who has an amazing resume that doesn't really care about you or believe in you and then, you know, vice versa. Mm-hmm. Or, or chop from coach to coach or academy to academy um, looking for the next best thing because it, it's not a sustainable model. You know, you, you need to – it's a relationship-based sport. You yeah. know, and that takes time to build that relationship, that trust. And um, it's uh, – we've gone away from that because everyone wants a quick fix. Everyone wants instant results. And right. uh, it's just not going to happen. I don't think it will ever change that, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I was listening to a conversation this morning um, among three British tennis journalists and they were talking about, of course, the draw and the news with the new players association and all this stuff that's coming out. And by the time people are listening to to our conversation next week, this will all be old news. But you know, interestingly, when I asked a question of them, um, which American player were they watching over the next two weeks? Did they feel like there was an American male? that was going to be able to break through and make it into the second week. And all three of them made comments regarding the lack of technical acuity, um, especially on the backhand side in the guys in U.S. tennis. And I thought that was so interesting because this is a conversation that's been going on since poor Andy Roddick won the last slam as an American. And, you know, I, I don't know what the issue is. Um, we seem to have female players who are breaking through right and left doing great stuff. Um, you were coaching Danielle Collins for a while. You coached the Orlando team during world team tennis. And so you've seen obviously males and females, what are your thoughts on that? Because you you just said a few minutes ago that, you know, technique is part of it, but really it's being able to compete. Is that what's missing in American male players right now? Is that ability to compete well? Um, yeah, I think definitely. Um, there's a component of that for sure. It's I don't know the answer. I mean, we... Oh, come it, on, Jay. Yeah, uh, it's such a... <laughs> It's such a talked-about topic, this, and right. um, it, it's it's interesting. And and a lot of people have different views. It's like maybe the American players aren't hungry enough. There's not enough deep, deep desire to to uh, do what it takes to win um, because life is pretty good here. They've got a lot of things. You've got a federation behind a lot of them, a lot of the players providing support. You've got your own grand slams, so you're awarded wild cards. You know, there's tour events over here, and and some of these other countries, there's they don't have a federation, they don't have tour events, um, they definitely don't have grand slams in that country. So there's no wild cards given to these players. So they have to fight and scratch and and earn everything they get. And it's it's not. But the it's players. no different for the women, and yet the women are breaking through. Correct. Yeah, there's a, there's a good point too. Can't answer that either. Yeah, that's um, it's that's that's a great point. You know, I uh, I don't know. I really don't know. It's it's interesting. It's uh, I don't think there'll ever will be a clear reason or why. You know, because it's everyone's such an individual uh, case with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're working with a young junior and they come to you at the beginning, whether they are just starting in the sport or they're moving from a different coach, how do you set the ground rules with the player and with the parents to make sure that you all get started on the same page along the developmental pathway, wherever they're jumping on with you? Um, It's, you know, I think it's a conversation of, of what what are you after? What what do you want? You know, what are the, the, the kids' goals? Is it just for them to start tennis and learn the game? Is it to play in the high school team? 
Is it to play college? Is it to go pro? Um, so I think that's where the conversation starts and then you work backwards from there. And then do you set ground rules in terms of the parents' involvement in their child's tennis? Um, no, no, I wouldn't say we, we set clear uh, ground rules with that. I think it's – we try to treat every case differently, you know, because every family has different goals for their kid. Every kid has different goals from another kid. Um, you know, there could be physical limitations on one and mental limitations on the other and financial limitations on the other. And, and must, yeah. So we prefer to take more of a holistic approach to, to each kid. So every conversation we have with the family we may differ slightly. But I think one thing that's standard is, you know, we there has to be a level of trust, honesty, and respect, and that that goes without saying with with every uh, kid family that we work with. Right. Yeah. Have you ever had a situation where you've worked with a child, worked with the family and just realize this isn't going in the right direction. It's time to cut ties. And you've initiated telling the family you need to change, find somebody different. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I've done that with, uh, with professionals as well. You know, mm. like it, you know, it's, uh, if, if <clears throat> as a coach, if we don't believe that this is working, it's, I'm not going to continue to do it just to collect the money. You know, we have to be happy as, as coaches working with these kids, we're going to really enjoy it and be passionate about it and, and think there's, there's a future there. And the player has to be happy and enjoy it. If one of them isn't on the same page, then it, it doesn't matter how good the player is or how good the coach, it's not going to work. It's just not a sustainable model. And, that doesn't mean we have disagreements or we don't have disagreements or, or issues about certain things. And, but at the end of the day, we both have to want to be there and, and sort of move, move together forwards in the same direction. You know, what are some of the warning signs that it might be time to break ties with a specific player and both go a different direction? Um, you know, maybe the the work ethic drops down a little bit, um, a little disengaged. Uh, you know, if we say, okay, <clears throat> you know, maybe take the weekend off or something like that, and then they go play six hours or, you know, it, it could be any number of reasons. It could be just a performance base. You know, the, the kid's just not improving anymore. You know? mm -hmm. and, and that's a big one, you know. Um, I think, and you have a feel for it too. Like you, you'll, you'll, you'll feel it. There'll be a, an aura in the air that uh, maybe something's wrong here. But, well, and so from the parent side, you know, it, it's very difficult, especially if your child has a relationship with the coach and, you know, feels that connection with the coach, but maybe things aren't progressing. Like you're saying, you know, they're, Either they're not excited about going to play or they're not following the coach's advice or they're just not progressing. Um, but making that decision that it's time to cut ties and move on can be really hard, hard on the family, hard, obviously hard on the coach from a financial standpoint, unless they have somebody else to jump right into that slot, but especially hard on the junior player. And I would say especially hard on the junior player when they are in their teen years and need that adult relationship outside of their parents. Well, I, I would say if, if it comes down to that and, and it's really tough on the kid, then, then it's probably not a good idea to break ties then. You know, I mean, I think if, if, if push comes to shove and uh, everyone's not happy, then the kid's probably happy to leave as well, mm. right? Um, sometimes, sometimes, but I have certainly seen and heard of situations where, you know, maybe the kid just has changed what his or her goals are mm -hmm. and hasn't maybe communicated that clearly to the parents. So the parents are making 
decisions based on performance and outcomes that the kid may just not care about anymore and is more concerned about just being at practice and being yeah. around the coach and being around their buddies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Always, um, it's at the end of the day, we always encourage, listen, the, you have to do what's right for the player, you know, and, and we always tell the parents that too. Like if you think, even if I agree or disagree, if you think it's better to do this, then, then if you think that's what's best for your child, do it. Mm-hmm. We, we doesn't mean we agree or we can give our opinion, but at the end of the day, it's not like, no, you have to do it our way or <laughs> right. you, you've got to do it like this. And we're not like that at all. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, it's, we want you to be happy. We want you to be here. We want you to show up to tennis in the afternoons or in the mornings and, and be excited because we're excited to be there. And, you know, it's, um, but at the end of the day, the parents are always going to do what they feel is best for their child. And, we have to understand that and accept that. Right. With COVID-19 and the vast reduction in junior competitive opportunities right now, what are you advising your players to do to keep that competitive edge and, you know, become better competitors? Yeah, it's, it's not easy. That's been tough. It's been, uh, because you, you work so hard, you practice so hard and you're working and there's no tournaments on the weekends to sort of unleash that, uh, you know, all of that uh, effort. So we we just try to explain to them, you know, just uh, it's an opportunity to get better. Um, it's it's like a, a pre-season for a junior. You know, in, mm-hmm. the, in the pros we have like a six-week pre-season that – there's always a fun time of the year for the, for the <clears throat> coaches and trainers and, and players because it's a real time to sort of not stress about competing and playing and you just get to work and improve and and then by the end you're, you're jumping out of your skin ready to go. So now this is a bit longer than six weeks uh, depending yeah. on which state you're in because some of the tournaments are back and playing and, and some are not. But it's, it's tough. It's As a coach you have to get a little creative to, to try to keep them engaged and interested and put some uh, competitive um, goals in place. And the the other thing is that if, if you're clear on, um, if, if the player's clear on what they're working on, they should be still very motivated because they're seeing these improvements as they go along, even though there are no problems. And, and you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's the main goal is to improve. And so... If, if we keep the kids focused on on what they're working on and and they can see that, then they're gonna yeah, they'll be fine. What is your philosophy around kids competing only with their peers and with their gender versus competing against older players, younger players, players from the opposite gender? Um, oh, it's competing's competing whether you're competing against a, a 60-year-old man or a 10-year-old girl or a, anything and everything in between. I mean, it's competing's competing. It, it, there is no right or wrong, especially with the juniors, you know. Um, I think is <clears throat> getting as much competition as they can and, and not sheltering them from playing against players less than them and not sheltering them from getting killed against better players and, and you know, because there's no level playing field as a junior. You know, um, I actually have a couple of uh, daughters who were playing a tournament this weekend in Florida and, you know, <clears throat> she she's 11 years old and she's playing against a 12-year-old who's much bigger and stronger. Mm-hmm. And just right there, it's like 12 and under girls, but it's that doesn't mean it's a level playing field because people... The, the kids develop physically at different stages and they develop mentally at different stages and it's it's pointless to say, oh, since <clears throat> my 11-year-old can do this but that 11-year-old on that other court is already playing like this, then why isn't my kid doing that? I mean, it, you can't compare. It's, right. It's impossible. It's tough not to do it, I get it, but you, you just can't compare junior tennis with, with uh, kids the same age and their peers. It's impossible. Look at Coco Golf. Right. Well, I'm 15. How come I, I'm not 
top 50 in the world and had a tour event under my belt and made third round of Wimbledon. Like, I must be doing something wrong. No, <laughs> you just can't compare. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things as a parent, right? And especially once your child kind of gets entrenched in the junior competition system and you're checking rankings and you're checking UTR and you're checking tennis recruiting stars and all that on a regular basis. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to get sucked into that mindset of, you know, I've got to move my kid to this academy or to this coach because those are the kids that are winning this week, you know, but in three weeks, it could be a whole different landscape, right? Correct. And that's why it comes back to, are you improving? Are you getting better? You know, um, and and the goal has to be on that. And and the clarity that the player and, and the parents have, I guess, with what they're working on takes away a lot of that stress too, you know. Um, and it's it's very important because at the end of the day, you never, you, we're not going to perfect this game. You, there, there is no end. You always have space and room to grow and get better. And some people's road looks different than other people's. You mm-hmm. know, some, some it happens very quickly and, and others takes a, a long time. But only at the end of your career can you sit back and compare once you've stopped tennis. That's yeah. the only time you can compare is when your career is over. And look, oh, look where I ended up, you know. And Okay, look where you ended up, you know. That's it. Even, and by, by that time, no one cares anyway. So, <laughs> like it doesn't matter right you're on your own path and you know you're playing for the love of the game and and you enjoy competing and it it is fun and when we get into comparing and and looking at rankings and stuff like that and it really takes the fun out of it it's it's not a pleasant experience and for sure but it's it's not easy it's tough tough to tough to manage that Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's in your face all the time, right? It's, it's accessible in the palm of your hand. And if it's not schoolwork, it's going to be, you know, applying for a job. I mean, it's, it's life. True. True. One of the things you said early in the conversation, talking about your own tennis upbringing was how you would have one lesson and then the rest of the days you were out playing with your buddies. Mm -hmm. What, how do you think we can get back to this idea of letting kids take back ownership of their tennis, arrange practice matches, arrange hitting sessions, things like that. I feel like when we adults got so involved in tennis, I mean, and it's not just tennis, it's all youth sports, but tennis is the one I know best. So when we got involved, Things really changed and I, you know, don't feel like they necessarily changed for the better. I think we've taken away that that incentive for our kids, that um, kind of hunger to compete, that by arranging everything as the adults, instead of saying, kids, hey, y'all all have cell phones, text each other, arrange a time to meet up, you know ride your bike down the street. There's a park, go hit, go do whatever. No adults need to be there. And I get, you know, you can't do that with a 10 year old because the way the world is today, we just can't do that. But, but certainly with teenagers, they can be responsible enough to do some of that in most places in the world, not everywhere. I get that, but. Yeah, it's, it's, I call it overcoaching. So the kids are overcoached. They, they can't swing one racket or hit one ball without the coach having a comment about it. No, nah, do it like this. No, no, you missed because you did that. No, like Or the parents, that. right? Or the parents, exactly. And now the, the kid shuts off their, their brain and all it's going to be is, is feedback. So mm-hmm. there's no problem solving. There's no resilience, which is what we spoke about earlier. There's no like figuring like I've hit the back fence four times in a row. Okay, what I got to do something about that? You know, like there's, and when parents and I've been guilty of this too as a coach, and I've definitely evolved and I like to think improved as a coach um, over the years. But when I started, I felt the pressure from the parents 
because if I didn't correct little Johnny who hit his backhand into the net, if I didn't verbally say something, it'd be like, oh, well, the parents, what are they spending their money on? You know, mm-hmm. like they need to be coached. But the part of coaching sometimes is just shutting your mouth and letting them figure it out and having that freedom. So we'll work in the mornings at our academy and we'll work and we'll be vocal and stuff. And in the afternoon, it's match play. And the coaches will just roam around the courts while the kids are playing. And, and it's not one coach on every court and there's not too much talking going on. But that's where they've got room to take ownership and, and sort of uh, problem solve on their own. And we give them a bit of space to do that. But also there is that element like, oh, well, the parents, you know, what are they spending their money on? Like, coaches aren't doing anything. Mm. It's like, no, there's a purpose to why we're not saying anything sometimes, you know. Right. Um, and the same- but I think, I think it's important for parents to hear that, right? They need to understand why you're not speaking, that mm-hmm. there is a purpose to your quietness. Mm-hmm. And there there is a goal there that you are trying to impart lessons by taking that step back, by keeping your mouth shut and leaving it to the kids to analyze and problem solve and self-correct and self-monitor and all of those things. And unless that communication is happening between the coach and the parent, that's, I think, where the conflict arises, where the parents say, well, what am I paying you all this money for, right? Yeah. And and it's, it's what's it like when you go play a tournament? I mean, you're out on the court by yourself. No, yeah. You know, uh, you're going to do everything yourself. But now, but that's not how I practice. I practice and I've got someone telling me what I'm doing wrong every single time. So when I go and play a tournament, I'm going to freak out. Yeah. I hit a double fault. Like, oh, what do I do now? (laughs) You're not not playing the way you practice. And we we talk about that a lot. And you, you, how, what we do on the practice court is how we want you to compete and play and, and, Mm -hmm. and so on. And um, so there's a big part of that, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the parents that are listening need to consider that next time they're watching their child and not hearing the coach comment after every point, after every shot. Maybe there's a reason for that. And instead of just assuming that you're paying for nothing, Mm -hmm. that maybe the coach really does know what he or she is doing and is staying silent in order to help your child develop to that next phase of being able to do all these things we just talked about. Um, and, and giving the coach the benefit of the doubt. And that gets back to what you were saying before too, Jay, about having that trust, right? Mm-hmm. That the coach needs to trust the player and the parent and the parents need to trust the coach to, do the things necessary to help the child reach whatever goals the child has set. Correct. Yeah. And that, and that goes with um, match play situations. Like if I've got a good junior and I'm just trying to, this, this good young player and I'm trying to develop their slice and their second serve kick, for example. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'm going to put them with this, this kid who's not too good for match play this afternoon. And, just to give them the, the space and and without pressure so they can use that slice and use that kick without getting annihilated. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, if the parents trust us with what we're doing with their kid in their development, when they walk in and see that that kid's playing with someone less than them, there'll be no questions. Right. Rarely does that happen. And no, I get it. That's, that's fine. But it's... Well, why that? Why is my kid playing with someone less than that? Well, it's it's actually for their per, like for their benefit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, trying to develop them as a tennis player, you know, I don't care whether they win or lose a practice set, you know. And playing with someone better than you doesn't make you a better tennis player. Right. <clears throat> Otherwise, there'd be no such thing as a tennis coach. You'd be just play with someone better than you, and you're top ten. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you know, it's all about that development and the, and the trust and and trust in the process and, and trust in the coach and we trust in the player and we trust in the family. Um, and then, you know, then you can do amazing things. It's, it's so, it's so cool. Like that's the fun part, just seeing how good you can get. 
Yeah. What are some of the things that are crossovers between coaching juniors and coaching pros? And then what are some of the aspects of your job that really you have to take off one hat and put on the other because it's so different? Um, well, one of the crossovers is that in, in terms of what the pros do and the drills that they do, uh, I mean, it's no different than, than what like a top junior is working. You know, it's just there's no secret drill that the pros do that the rest of the world's not doing. Like that. No, they hit crossbars. They hit backhands crossbars, you know, in <laughs> the middle. But they just do it with a level of engagement and focus and intensity that the juniors don't. I think with, with juniors, <clears throat> there's so much, there's so much left to develop, whether it be forehands, backhands, serves, transition, fitness, movement. I mean, it's endless how much work they have where with the pros, they're a little more organized and established with all of that stuff. And then it's, okay, now how do you win? You know, yeah. um, and the, the mental aspect of it and the, the self-confidence and the belief um, that where that becomes more important in the pros than it's important in the juniors too, for sure. But it's tough to have self-belief and, and this confidence when you're still learning, you know, how to hit a, a one-handed slice backhand. Right. I mean, it's, there's so much that is uh, left to develop, which breeds confidence and self-belief once you once you achieve all these little goals. And then it comes down to, to competing and, and finding a way to win. And, and that's where the mentality comes into it as well. So I mentioned that you just came off coaching World Team Tennis. Now you're working with Tennis Australia at the U.S. Open for two weeks. World Team Tennis was three weeks in a bubble. Yeah. Now you're two weeks in a bubble. Um, can you talk about the difference between coaching a team event versus coaching individual players in an event? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely different. I mean, it's, you know, night and day. The, the world team tennis is, is made up of, of six players, three men, three females. And uh, it's, you know, I'm... You know, some of these players I met for the first time. Mm. So I have no past experience or relationship with them, so it, it's a matter of just managing the team, as as opposed to no, like the, you know, you got to do this on your forehand or this on your serve, and you know, and it's more just managing the team, getting everyone um, competing, you know, keeping good energy, good atmosphere, and and uh, you know, we we talk about game plans and stuff for the specific players and opponents beforehand, but it's it's a very quick format. It's five games. And yeah. It's it's not as if you're settling into a match. It's it's just not. It's hey, be focused, compete every point. You know. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of cheerleading, maybe. Uh, a again. lot of a lot of cheerleading when oh, you're coaching a team. A lot yeah. of that, yeah. Probably eighty percent of that, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And then, so then, moving now to a Grand Slam where you're coaching individual players. What does that look like? You know, what day of the match, what what are you doing with your player? So today, for example, um, I was looking after two female players that are in the draw and they both play tomorrow. So <clears throat> we just had one practice each. Um, just, you know, stress that there's nothing between today and tomorrow that you do on the practice floor. It's going to make a difference what happens tomorrow. You know, you, you can't you can't win the match the day before the tournament, but you can lose, right? By by if you can if you get in a negative headspace and you stress out and you worry and I just explained to them, listen, the the day or two before your first round match, especially for Grand Slam, it's normal to have these anxious thoughts and this desire to, to feel good. Like I, I need to feel good, I can't miss a ball, I, I need everything to be perfect because I've got a match tomorrow, you know. And so I just explained to them, listen, it's natural to have those feelings, but just make sure your self-talk is is logical and positive and just be focused on having good energy in your feet. Be focused. The courts are pretty quick here. So just every time you start the point, you're on. Be, be, very, uh, be very locked in on the first ball and then, you know, just get a good set in and then that's it. Relax get ready for tomorrow and after after our chat here I'm going to go downstairs and, and meet the girls and, and go over their um, 
um, the finals game plan and just talk about the match. And on match day, what's that look like? I mean, I know it depends on what time they're playing and all of that, but yeah, um, just a you know thirty minute warm up, um, hour and hour and a half before they're scheduled to play, <clears throat> and then uh, I'll get changed, have a bite to eat, um, sort of just relax and talk, just not about tennis, just about anything, you know, have a laugh. And then, um, you know, as the match is nearing its end, the, the match before them will, you know, go to the gym or get outside and run around, and kick a ball, throw a footy, you know, start doing their dynamic warm-up and then maybe go over just two minutes of the uh, last uh, couple of pointers before the match and then that's it. Yeah, then they're on. And then once the match is over, do you sit down with your player right after win or lose, or are you of the mindset that it's better to give them some space? It's completely different match to match. Okay. <clears throat> if there's something that I feel needs to be, they need to hear straight away, I will take them straight after the match. If <clears throat> it's something that can wait and they'll be a little more um, – in a headspace to listen and take it all in, I'll, I'll give them the day. Maybe it's an hour, maybe it's the next morning at breakfast. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a, a timing. It's just a, you know, you got to read the situation and uh, um, it's different day to day. Right. So you go straight back out on the practice court. We'll go straight to the indoors and do a basket of serves or work on something specific. Um, other times you just leave them alone. Yeah. <laughs> Let them go to the locker room and, uh, you know, give them some space. Right. And this this Grand Slam is going to be different than anything we've seen before for a lot of reasons. But one other way it's different is, as I mentioned earlier, the media is not there or very limited media is there. So typically at the U.S. Open, which is the only major I've covered, um, the, once the match is over, the players have a very small window of time to get themselves into the interview rooms and the media is there and does their thing. They're not going to have the urgency at this tournament, which will be interesting to kind of see how that impacts the players and their engagement with the media this year. I'm really looking forward to hearing from some of my media cohorts that are actually there. I'm not credentialed this year since there's no junior event, but um, I think it will be interesting. And, and I don't know if you have a sense yet of what the players are saying about that, how they feel about some of that pressure being taken off of them. Yeah. To be honest, I, I don't know. I haven't spoken to, or the players haven't sort of expressed anything with regard to that, I know two of the girls in Cincinnati this week, two of the Aussie girls were in the quarters of the doubles, and after their match they got <clears throat> taken straight to an interview mm -hmm. and back to the, the building. So I know there's still an element of that there. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure how, how they feel about that, whether it's less stressful or, or they miss that part of it. I'm not sure. Yeah. It'll be interesting. I mean, there are a lot of things that are different. There are a lot of things that are the same. They still have to go back out onto a court, hit the ball over the net, keep it between the lines, win one more point, win the last point um, yeah. in order to move on to the next round. So that stays the same regardless of whether they're living in a bubble or, you yeah. know, roaming the city freely. A lot of unknowns too, and this is what I was telling to my players here, is that they – Everyone's come from a different part of the world and no one knows what their build-up has been like, mm. whether they've been training super hard over the break, whether they've been doing nothing, whether they've been injured, whether they've, whether they've been sick. I mean, it is just everyone's coming out like what, you know, who knows who's going to play well, who's going to not play well. It's, it's really opened the doors and I'm telling my players, like, you've got to see that as a positive. Yeah. You know, take advantage of that because you never know what, what what the other players have been doing. So get out there and get after it and have a crack. Well, I suspect there are going to be no easy matches over the two weeks. Uh, we saw Victoria Azarenka mm -hmm. win the Western and Southern. I mean, 
that was out of the blue, seemingly, but apparently she's been working in training, as you were saying. Yeah, and, clearly. you know, she had herself in the right headspace to get out there and win that event. Yeah. Now, granted, she didn't have to play the final, but um, she had an incredible yeah. week. And even if she was to play and lose, I mean, it's still a breakthrough result for her down yeah. on the last few years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so I suspect we're going to see a lot of that. And it makes it that much more difficult to predict outcomes and, um, you know, say, oh, this person's got an easy path to the quarters or whatever. Um, we just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's be very exciting. Be interesting. Yeah. Well, good luck to you. Good luck Thank to you your much. players. Enjoy the experience. And um, when you get back down to Florida and back to your juniors, maybe we'll check in again in, in a couple months and see how things are going. Yeah. yeah, would love that. That'd be awesome. Okay. Jay Gooding, thank you again. Have a great time in New York. I'm really sad I'm not there, but um, I'll be watching on TV. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And oops, I just totally messed up our shot there. Sorry about that. Um, but to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. And we will catch you next time on Parenting Aces. Bye-bye, everybody. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, buy a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.